0: Hello, and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 4 of The Fall of Constantinople and the title of this episode is The Emperor and the Sultan. And apologies if my voice sounds a little bit croaky since I've got a bit of a cold, although not Covid, thankfully. Now in the last episode we heard about how the Ottoman Turks were defeated by the Turkish Mongol ruler Timur the Lame, or Tamerlane as he's sometimes called, but they recovered rapidly and were soon beating again at the doors of both Europe and Constantinople. In this episode, we'll move towards the great Ottoman assault on Constantinople in 1453, and we'll hear about the two opposing leaders, Constantine XI Palaiologus, who was to be the last Byzantine emperor, and his nemesis, the Ottoman Sultan Mehmet II, who would become one of the most famous Ottoman Sultans, named Mehmet the Conqueror. Famous not just for capturing Constantinople but also extending the Ottoman Empire in both the West and the East. And Mehmet is also revered in modern Turkey for his piety and patronage of the arts and sciences and his re-establishment of Constantinople as one of the great cities of the world. And Constantine XI also became a legend in Greek folklore as the heroic last Christian ruler of Constantinople. Some saw significance in the fact that he bore the same name as Constantine the Great, who founded Constantinople over a thousand years earlier in AD 330, just as Rome itself had, in legend, been founded by Romulus, and with the last Roman emperor being Romulus Augustulus. He also became known in Greek folklore as the Marble Emperor, reflecting a popular legend which endured for centuries that Constantine had not actually died but had been rescued by an angel and turned into marble and hidden beneath the Golden Gate of Constantinople. The legend says that he's still there awaiting a call from God to be restored to life and reconquer both the city and the old empire. So, without further ado, i I'll read from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful book on the fall of Constantinople. Hope you enjoy it! The last emperor of Byzantium was Constantine XI Palaiologus, who succeeded to the throne when his elder brother John VIII died in 1448. Constantine was crowned on the 16th of January 1449 in the Byzantine town of Mystra in the Greek Peloponnese. He arrived in Constantinople on the 12th of March, having travelled with his retinue from the Morea in Catalan galleys. A few days later, he invested his brothers Demetrius and Thomas as joint despots of the Morea, which was the last Byzantine possession in mainland Greece. At a solemn ceremony attended by the Emperor mother And the high officials of the empire, the two brothers swore allegiance to the emperor and eternal friendship with each other. Though they were frequently to break their vows of friendship, their departure left Constantine, master of Constantinople. The emperor was now nearly 45 years of age. We have no full description of his appearance. He seems to have been tallish and spare, with the strong regular features of his family and its dark colouring. He had no particular interest in intellectual matters, in philosophy. philosophy or theology, though he had been friendly with the Byzantine philosopher Plethon at Mystra, and his last action before he left for Constantinople had been to confirm Plethon's sons in the properties which their father had been given. He had shown himself to be a good soldier and a competent administrator. Above all he had integrity. He never behaved dishonourably. He had shown generosity and patience in dealing with his difficult brothers, his friends and officials were devoted to him, even if they sometimes disagreed with him, and he had the gift of inspiring admiration and affection among all his subjects. His arrival at Constantinople had been welcomed with genuine rejoicing. He needed this support in the embittered and melancholy city to which he had arrived. The hatred against the official union of the Byzantine Church with Rome was still unabated. The union had been agreed by Constantine's brother, the previous emperor, John Eighth and Constantine considered himself bound by his brother's commitments. But at first he took no drastic action. This was probably due to his mother's influence – for he greatly relied upon her. Her death on the 23rd of March 1450 was a cruel loss to him. He tried to surround himself with ministers from all parties. The senior minister, the megaduke grand admiral of the fleet, was Lucas Notaras, who was opposed to the Union but not fanatical. John Cantacuzenos, an intimate friend, of the emperors in his Peloponnesian days, and a strenuous advocate of the Union was made a general. The grand Logothete Metokites and the protostrata Demetrius Kantikazenos seemed to have doubted the wisdom of the Union, but were ready to accept whatever policy the emperor might ordain. His secretary, Francis, who was probably his closest confidant, shared their view. The pro-Latin patriarch Gregory, who wanted closer relations with Rome, was disappointed at the lack of support given to him by the new emperor. In August 1451, he retired to Rome, where he was better appreciated and where he poured out complaints against the Byzantine regime. Meanwhile, Constantine was still searching for a wife after the premature death of his wife in 1442, probably at his mother's suggestion to placate the anti-Latin feelings of his people, he decided to find one in the Orthodox Greek world. In 1450, the faithful Francis was sent eastward again to the courts of Georgia and Trebizond. He considered the Georgian princess very suitable, but he was taken aback when her father, King George, announced that in his country it was usual for husbands to give dowries to their wives, not wives to their husbands. However, Constantine went on to say that there is no accounting for the habits of different. Races. After all, he joked that he had heard in Britain one woman often has several husbands and one man several wives. But Francis then came up with another idea. When he was in Georgia, he heard of the death of the Ottoman Sultan Murad. And when he arrived at Trebizond and discussed the news with the Emperor John, he was told that the Ottoman Sultan's Christian widow, Mara of Serbia, who was the niece of the Empress of Trebizond, had been sent home to her father, loaded with gifts and honours. Francis had a brilliant idea. He wrote at once to Constantine to say that she was the right bride for him. The sultana was still young, she was wealthy, and she had been very popular at the Turkish court and was said to have an influence over her stepson, the new sultan. He pointed out that it would not be undignified for the emperor to marry the widow of an infidel ruler, for Constantine's own grandmother, the Empress Helena's mother, had been the wife of a Turkish lord and had even borne him children before she married her Serbian husband. Husband, Francis hurried home to press his suggestion. Constantine was interested, but he complained that all his ministers gave him different advice. His mother, who could have decided it for him, was dead and his intimate friend John Kantakouzenos had just died. However, the sultana herself ruined the scheme. She had vowed that if she ever escaped from the infidel harem, she would devote the rest of her life to good works in celibacy. Constantine then chose the Georgian princess. An embassy was sent to Georgia to fix up the contract and to bring the bride to Constantinople, but there were delays and nothing happened. Meanwhile, the Byzantine Emperor of Trebizond had expected Francis to rejoice with him over the news of the Ottoman Sultan Murad's death. Francis took the opposite view. Murad, he pointed out, had been fundamentally a man of peace who no longer wanted the strain and effort of warfare, but the new Sultan was known to have been an enemy of the Christians from his early childhood. He would certainly seek to attack and destroy the Byzantine states in Trebizond and Constantinople. Francis's fears were shared by his own imperial master. Reports from the agents kept by the Byzantines at the Turkish court gave ample warning of the danger and the warnings were justified. The new sultan Mehmet II was now aged only 19. He had been born at Adrianople on the 30th of March 1432. His childhood had been unhappy. His mother Huma Hatun had been a slave girl most certainly Turkish, although later legend, not entirely discouraged by Mehmet himself, transformed her into a high-born Frankish lady. Her father paid little attention to him, preferring his sons by his nobler wives. He spent his early boyhood quietly at Adrianople with his mother and his nurse, a formidable and pious Turkish lady. But his eldest brother, Ahmet, died suddenly at Amasia in 1437, and the second, à Edine, was misdistorted Seriously murdered in that same city six years later. Mehmet was left at the age of 11, heir to the throne and the only living prince of the Ottoman dynasty apart from the Sultan himself and a distant cousin, Sultan Suleiman's grandson Orhan, who was in exile at Constantinople. Murad therefore summoned the boy to the court and was shocked to see how his education had been neglected. An army of tutors, headed by an illustrious Kurdish professor, Ahmet Kurani, was hired to instruct him. They did their work thoroughly. Mehmet was well-trained in the sciences and in philosophy and well-read in Islamic and Greek literature. Beside his native Turkish, he learnt to be fluent in Greek Arabic, Latin, Persian and Hebrew. Soon his father began to initiate him in the arts of government. Mehmet was aged 12 when Murad, after signing his truce with King Ladislas, decided to retire from active life, leaving his son in charge of his empire. First, it was necessary to suppress disorders in Anatolia, and Murad was still engaged there when news came of the Christian advance on Varna. The vizier, Halil Pasha, summoned him hastily back to Europe, all the more more eagerly as he was alarmed by the young Mehmet's behaviour. Murad had intended that his son should be under the tutelage of Halil, who was an old and trusted friend, but the boy at once showed a determination to go his own way. Hardly had Murad left for Anatolia than there was a crisis over a heretical Persian dervish whom Mehmet befriended, but whom Halil, the son and grandson of a vizier and a Muslim of the old school, strongly disliked. Mehmet was forced to surrender the heretic to the chief mufti Fareddin, mufti being the name given to the highest experts in Islamic law, who incited the populace to burn the wretch. Apparently so anxious was the mufti to see that the fire was burning properly stoked, that he came too close and singed his own beard. Nevertheless, when Murad returned from his victory at Varna, he would not be deflected from his determination to retire. Therefore, Mehmet was left again as ruler of the empire under Halil's tutelage. Once again, the experiment was disastrous. There were wars on the Albanian and Greek frontiers. Mehmet was furious with his guardians when they rejected an impractical scheme of his for attacking Constantinople. His arrogant manners and his unapproachability offended both the court and the populace. But it was the army that showed the greatest discontent. In order to prevent an open military revolt, Halil persuaded Murad to return to Adrianople and resume the government. His arrival there in the autumn of 1446 was greeted with general rejoicing. Mehmet was sent to Manissa, the scene of his father's interrupted retirement. It is possible that Murad thought of disinterpreting inheriting Mehmet, for he had a high-born wife of a family already connected to the Ottoman house, and she soon was to bear him a son. But he thought better of it. After two years of exile, Mehmet was summoned back to take part in the campaign against Hunyadi that resulted in the victory of Kosovo. Earlier that year, a slave girl, Gulbahar, daughter of Abdullah, Probably an Albanian convert to Islam, bore him a son by Ezzet. Murad disapproved of the liaison. In 1450, he ordered Mehmet to marry the daughter of a wealthy Turkoman prince, Suleiman Zulkadroglu, lord of Malatya. The marriage was pompously celebrated, but Mehmet never cared for Sit Hatun, this bride who had been imposed on him. She spent the rest of her days neglected and childless in the palace harem at Adrianople. For the remainder of his father's reign, Mehmet was treated with greater friendliness. He appeared now and then at the court and accompanied the Sultan on one or two campaigns. But he was often back in his palace at Manissa. He was there when his mother died in August 1450 and he saw that she was honourably buried at Brusa with an inscription that barely mentions Murad. He was there again when Murad himself died of a fit of apoplexy at Adrianople on the 13th of February 1451. No one doubted that Memet was was the heir to the throne. A sealed letter sent to him by Halil Pasha brought him hurrying from Manisa by the time that he had crossed the Dardanelles He knew that his succession was not to be disputed, so he paused for two days at Gallipoli while a fitting reception was arranged for him at Adrianople. He arrived there on the 18th of February. The Grand Vizier and all the high officials of the state rode out to meet him. At one league from the gates, they dismounted in order to walk back to the city in procession ahead of his horse. On reaching the palace, he held a reception. His father's ministers stood nervously in the background until he told Shahab. Adine, the chief eunuch, to bid them to take their usual places. He then confirmed the grand vizier in his post. The second vizier, Ishaq Pasha, who had been Murad's closest friend, was appointed governor of Anatolia, a position of great dignity and importance, but one that would remove him from his ally Halil. Saruja Pasha and Zaganos Pasha, both of them devoted to Murad but less friendly with Halil, were appointed assistant viziers together with Shehab Adin. Soon afterwards, his father's widow, the daughter of Ibrahim Bey, came to offer her condolences on Murad's death and her congratulations on Mehmet's succession. While he was giving her a gracious welcome, his servants hastened to the harem to smother her young son, Ahmet, in his bath. The bereaved mother was eventually ordered to marry Ishak Pasha and retired with him to Anatolia. As Francis was to be informed at Trebizond, Murad's Christian widow, Mara of Serbia. Serbia was sent back with every honour to her father. Having established his administration and tidied his palace, the young sultan settled down to plan his policy. The outside world only knew of him as an inexperienced youth whose early career had been lamentable, but those who saw him now were impressed by him. He was handsome, of middle height, but strongly built, His face was dominated by a pair of piercing eyes under arched eyebrows and a thin, hooked nose that curved over a mouth with full red lips. In later life, his features reminded men of a parrot about to eat ripe cherries. His manner was dignified and rather distant, except when he had drunk too much, for he shared his family's impious liking for alcohol. But he would always be gracious, even cordial, to anyone whose scholarship he respected, and he enjoyed the company of artists. He was notoriously secretive. The unhappy events of his childhood had taught him to trust no one. But his intelligence, his energy and his determination commanded respect. No one who knew him could venture to hope that this formidable young man would ever allow himself to be deflected from the task that he had set himself to perform, of which the first and the greatest was the conquest of Constantinople." Meanwhile in the West there was complacency. Ambassadors who had been recently to Murad's court had reported on the fiasco of Mehmet's earlier tenure of the throne. This incapable young man was unlikely, they thought, to prove a menace to Christendom. The illusion was confirmed by the amiable readiness of the Sultan to confirm treaties that his father had made. In the late summer of 1451, when the news of his accession had penetrated throughout Europe, a stream of embassies arrived at Adrianople on the 10th of September, Mehmet received a Venetian mission and formally renewed the peace treaty which his father had signed with the Republic five years previously. Ten days later, he signed a pact with John Hunyadi's representatives, arranging for a truce which should last for three years. The Ragusan embassy was received with special favour as it brought an offer to raise the tribute paid by the city annually to the Sultan by 500 pieces of gold. Envoys from the Grand Master of the knights at Rhodes, from the prince of Wallachia, and from the lord of Lesbos and the government of Chios, all of whom came laden with handsome presents, were given assurances of goodwill. The Serbian despot not only received his daughter back, but was permitted to reoccupy some towns in the upper Struma Valley. Even the Byzantine emperor Constantine's ambassadors, who had been the first to arrive and who came in some trepidation, being better informed of the sultan's character, were cheered by their reception. The Sultan not only swore on the Quran before them that he would respect the integrity of Byzantine territory, but he also promised to pay the emperor the annual sum of 3,000 aspers from the re- revenues of some Greek towns in the lower Struma Valley. The towns legally belonged to the Ottoman prince Orhan, and the money was to be used to maintain him so long as he was kept in honourable detention at Constantinople. Even the monastic community of Mount Athos, which had prudently acknowledged Ottoman rule after Murad's capture of Thessalonica, was assured that there would be no interference with its autonomy. It appeared that the new Sultan was under the influence of Murad's old minister, Halil, who was known to have shared his master's taste for peace. Byzantine diplomats had carefully cultivated Halil's friendship. It was gratifying to find their efforts rewarded, or so it seemed. But shrewder observers could have realised that Mehmet's gestures were not genuine. It suited him to have peace around his frontiers while he planned his great campaign to strike at the city of Constantinople. <laughs> And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it and if you did as usual I'd be delighted if you wanted to subscribe, to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode we'll turn to the Byzantine Emperor Constantine's last desperate attempts to find help from the West as he faces the inevitable Ottoman onslaught. See you then.